The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. The section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take our hearts and make them yours. And take, take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me ask you, because um, most of you have been around this church for a while, so let me ask you, do you have specific dreams for this church? I know before I came here, you, you went through this sort of process of creating a vision for the next five years, but what if five years is not long enough? Because the thing is, unless Jesus comes back in the next five years, this church needs to be here reaching the lost in six years. When you think about the future, are you, are you excited? Are you depressed? Concerned? Are you hopeful or are you hopeless? What if I said there is only one correct way for Christians to feel when they think about the future? We're not a people of hopelessness. But all too often that is exactly how we approach the future. With, with the same hopelessness as everybody else. So we're going to dive into Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. And then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it's your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin in Hanamel. 
And I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed. I had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Maseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So God asked Jeremiah to make this really uh, unnerving commitment. By, by the time this story takes place, Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonians have it surrounded, and it is abundantly clear to anyone with eyes to see that they are going to lose. The Babylonians are going to come over the wall. The city will fall. People are already making their escape plans. They know it's lost. And to make matters worse, Jeremiah is not only in the middle of a city that's under siege, he's in prison in a city that's under siege because he kept telling the king things the king did not want to hear. So he's in the middle of a war zone, and, and in ancient warfare, you know, if, if the invading army had to fight to get over the walls, there was a pretty good bet they were just going to kill everyone they found inside. So he's got, on the one hand, an army that's pretty likely to kill him when they come over the walls. And on the other hand, the people inside the walls want to kill him too. And then his cousin comes to him and says, hey, you want to buy some land? It's, it's really great, I promise. It's, it's lovely. It's, this time of year, whew, the weather's great. Um, and, and the land is in the village of Anathoth. It's his hometown, which is three miles south of Jerusalem which means it's already in enemy hands. The Babylonians are already there. They have it. His cousin is getting him to buy land that is occupied by an enemy army. And he says, yeah, here's the money. And he doesn't just buy the land. He makes sure that there are multiple witnesses to his purchase of the land. He pays out the money, weighs it on the scale. He makes sure that there's two copies of the deed, both signed by him and all the witnesses. And then he puts them in a sealed jar because that's the best method they have of preserving it to make sure that future generations will know that Jeremiah bought that land. And he does it because God says, houses and fields and vineyards will be bought again. In other words, all of this will be restored. It may seem right now like the world is ending and as if everything is falling apart and there is no hope, but with God there is always hope. Sometimes God asks us to take action that demonstrates our trust in his promises even when those actions seem foolish. Right? No doubt all the people watching Jeremiah pay for that land thought he was an idiot. Right? Jeremiah, you're buying land that the Babylonians already took. <laughs> you're, you're not going to live to see it. His cousin probably thought he was taking advantage of him. He's charging him money for land Jeremiah will never get to use. 
But Jeremiah knew, he knew that one day his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren would be on that land. He knew that even though all seemed lost, it wasn't. And he knew that even though he himself might never see that field he just paid for, his descendants would. They would use it. They would occupy it. They would grow on it. In this way, God is is calling Jeremiah to play the long game. To see beyond his own life, beyond his own death. To use a popular expression, he's calling him to plant a tree in whose shade he will never sit. And he specifically calls him to do that as an example to the people around him of what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness means trusting in God's plan even when you won't be alive to reap the benefits. And we are not good at that. We are not good at seeing beyond the end of our own life. We're not good at being concerned with what happens when we are no longer here. And we really never have been. It's never been a strength of ours to to be worried about what happens when we're gone. I mean, we kind of pay lip service to the idea, but more often than not, our actions in this life demonstrate that we really aren't all that worried about it. I mean, there, there are some things we've done that, that show us some level of, of concern, right? The national parks are a great example. People gathered together and said, you know what? These places are, are so beautiful and so majestic. We should preserve them for future generations, even if it means we can't use this land now. Most of us will set up some kind of uh, inheritance for our children, right? But, but that's kind of where we draw the line. And if you don't believe me when I say that we are overwhelmingly unconcerned with what happens beyond our own lives, just listen to politicians during election campaigns. None of them are are raising concerns for what's going to happen to your great-grandchildren. None of them are talking about what they're going to do to fix the future for three and four generations down the road. Even, by the way, when they are talking about issues that lend themselves to that kind of concern. Listen to a politician talk about how they're going to address climate change, and they aren't necessarily talking so much about what's going to happen in 100 years. They're talking about what's going to happen in your life right now. On both sides of the issue, by the way, they they will all frame it as, as a crisis to deal with right here, right now. Not because of what they believe in their hearts about what really the real problem is, but because they know that the best way to get people to respond to any problem is to make it seem like an immediate emergency. That's how we operate. We are far less concerned with problems 100 years down the road than we are with things right now. Even if, by the way, the problems we deal with right now are the sort of thing that no one will remember in 100 years. Believe it or not, we are actually a pretty young church. There are a whole lot of people in the room who were among the group that started this congregation. We're a fairly young church. And we're actually part of a fairly young denomination. The United Methodist Church has only existed since 1968, which means there are a lot of you here who predate the UMC. Do you like how I phrased that? That was nice, wasn't it? 
Prior to that, there was the Methodist Episcopal Church and there was the Evangelical United Brethren, and they, they joined into one. And so we're a young denomination, and, and, and despite the, the headlines that we see these days, this is not the first time that the Methodist movement has faced division. It's far from it, in fact. Uh, we split from the Church of England in 1784 for the very good and very practical reason that Church of England clergy had to swear an oath of loyalty to the crown, and a bunch of people who just rebelled against the crown probably didn't feel too good about taking that oath. That's in 1784. In 1792, the Christian church, which was originally called the Republican Methodist Church, split from the Methodist Episcopal Church. In 1816, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was formed because black church members were tired of being treated as second-class citizens in the Methodist Episcopal Church. In 1828, the Methodist Protestant Church split from the MEC because they didn't like having bishops. In 1843, the Wesleyan Church was formed by congregations who left the Methodist Episcopal Church because it didn't do enough to promote the abolition of slavery and because it wouldn't allow them to ordain women. In fact, the Wesleyan Church was the first church to ordain a female pastor whose name was Antoinette Brown in 1856, a full hundred years before anyone else in the Methodist movement would do it. In 1845, the Methodist Episcopal Church South was formed when Southern Methodist bishops and clergy refused to free their slaves. In 1849, George Scott left the MEC and found, founded the Wesleyan Methodist Connection when he felt that the MEC was not doing enough to condemn the practice of slavery. In 1852, the Congregational Methodist Church split from the Methodist Episcopal Church because they didn't like bishops. In 1860, the Free Methodist Church split off because they believed in the abolition of slavery and the ordination of women. And in 1908, the Church of the Nazarene split from the Methodist Episcopal Church because they felt the Methodists weren't holy enough. Make of that what you will. The last church that I served before I came here is coming up on 180 years old. I can't remember the exact date they were founded, but they were in the late 170s when I was there, so they should be right around the 180 mark now. Um, that means that they were over 120 years old when the United Methodist Church formed. 120 years old. For the vast majority of of that church's existence. It was not a United Methodist Church. In point of fact, it has seen at least, at least six divisions within Methodism. And it is still standing. The UMC is not a, a monolithic ancient institution. It's not yet 60 years old. And I say all this to make the point that we are not called actually to think about next year. We're not called to think about the next 10 years. We're called to think about the next 200 years, the next 300, the next 400. Whatever may happen in the next six months, nobody's going to remember it in 100 years. Nobody. Just like nobody remembers right now that in 1908, the Church of the Nazarene split off from the Methodist Episcopal Church. They don't remember those things. What they do remember is which churches were there in their community preaching the gospel, feeding the hungry, and seeking the lost. My friends, we are not slowing down. Our ministries are not on hold. Whatever happens in these next six months, remember, you love this church. 
God brought you here for a reason. He did. He brought me here for a reason. That's not about to change. We are building something that will outlive us. 200 years from now, there will still be people worshiping at Asbury. That's the goal. That's what we're working for. That's why we give of our time and our money and our gifts and our presence and our witness. So that in 200 years, there will still be a community of people here called Asbury reaching out to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm asking you to pray. We're not praying for what we want. We're not praying to get our way. We're praying for God to lead us. We're praying for God to show us how to build a church that will outlive us. Because if history is any indication, 200 years from now, all the names of all those denominations are going to change. One way or another. But the churches will still be here. We're praying for God to show us the way forward because we know that no matter what, God is with us. And because God is with us, we are a people of hope. We may not know what the future holds, but we do know it will be good because God is good and God is with us. We don't have any reason to fear. We don't have a reason to be hopeless. And you may think the future looks bleak. There's a lot of reasons to think that outside the church. Some of us are worried about climate change. And, and if the sea levels rise, Corpus Christi might not be here in 200 years. Some of us are worried about social instability. And, and if all the bitterness and all the hatred in our society boils over into civil war, the United States might not be here in 200 years. Some of us are worried about the declining church, the, the slow death of Christianity in the West. And you're worried that, that the church won't be here in 200 years. Immediately following the, the American Revolution, um, this was not a Christian nation by any means, by any measure. Uh, I'm quoting here. Drunkenness was epidemic. City streets were lawless at night, and the church appeared to be in terminal decline. Thomas Paine argued that Christianity would be forgotten within 30 years. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote to the Bishop of Virginia that the church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. The historian J. Edwin Orr writes, The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. In a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd of Lenis, Massachusetts, in 16 years had not taken one young person into fellowship. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work and took up other employment. Imagine that. A poll taken at Harvard had discovered not one believer in the whole student body. They took a poll at Princeton, which was a much more evangelical place, where they discovered only two believers in the student body, and only five that did not belong to the filthy speech movement of that day. Students rioted. They held a mock communion at Williams College, and they put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. They burned down Nassau Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of a local Presbyterian church in New Jersey and burnt it in a public bonfire. <laughs> 
Christians were so few on campus in the 1790s, the 1790s, that they met in secret, like communist cells, and kept their minutes in code so that no one would know. And so in 1794, a Baptist pastor, yes, the Baptists do good things sometimes, a Baptist pastor named Isaac Backus sent out a plea to pastors all across the country in every denomination. He writes a letter and sends it all over the country, urging them all to pray for revival. Religious faith in America was at an all-time low, far, far lower than it is right now. And the churches didn't choose to give in to fear. They didn't choose to, to just give it all up. They didn't choose to fight using the world's tactics. They chose to pray. And so they worked together to plan prayer meetings all across the country so that the entire body of Christ within the United States was praying together for revival. So on the first Monday of every month in every church in every town in the country, the few remaining Christians would meet and they would pray. And revival came. And today we call that revival the second great awakening. And you can trace all of the, the parts of the modern missionary movement. You can trace the abolition of slavery both in Europe and in the U.S. You can trace even things like modern Sunday school all to that revival. All of these things happened because the church got on its knees and prayed. When it was faced with the greatest crisis in living memory, the church chose to pray. See, we struggle to see beyond the next few days or weeks. We struggle to see beyond the grave, beyond our own life. And we tend to feel a sense of hopelessness or apathy toward the future, and so we ignore it. But Jesus always described his kingdom throughout the Gospels as, as a seed you might plant, or he described it like, like yeast you might mix into bread, something small that you put somewhere, and over time it multiplies and grows and expands until it's bigger than you would have ever thought it could be. And his ministry follows that pattern in the Gospels. If you read them closely, you notice he doesn't spend much time in Jerusalem where the big crowds are, where the temples are. He goes there at the end of his life. He goes to Jerusalem to die. But most of his ministry is spent wandering through the countryside to all these little small towns, preaching to small gatherings of people. He preaches to small groups before he ever draws a crowd. He heals in private before he ever heals in public. He plants seeds all throughout the Judean countryside. And those seeds would not grow into his church until after his death, resurrection, and ascension. It was after he stopped walking the earth that they finally grew enough to be called something like a church. And the apostles did the same thing. They kept planting those seeds wherever they could. First in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then around the world. None of them would live to see what it would become. None of them could have imagined what the church would become long after they were gone. In many cases, they probably preached to people who didn't actually receive their message until long after they were gone. Jesus calls us to plant seeds. He doesn't call us to do something big or extraordinary. He's not actually all that worried about 
numbers or, or massive events. He's worried about whether or not we are planting the seeds of something that will outlive us, that will grow into something bigger than we could have ever imagined or hoped. So I'm asking you to pray. I'm, I'm handing out, well, not handing out. These are out, out in the entry for you to grab, these prayer guides. For the next six months, I'm going to put out a different one each month. And each week, you'll have a little scripture verse, maybe two, and a couple of different subjects to pray over. And it's, and it's your job then to remember to actually pray every day that week. So grab one of these and take it home and put it somewhere you'll see. And on the second page, I, I give you resources to help you pray. And in some cases, it's, it's God forbid, it's a book. Um, you might have to read. And I know people don't like to read anymore. But I'm telling you, you have to. In this case, it's two books. They're both short. It's okay. And sometimes it's a book that's just there to help you, help you explore your prayer life a little bit more. I know that not everybody actually prays all that often. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. Jesus knows who you are. But, but the reality is some of us don't pray alone often enough to feel all that comfortable doing it. So I'm giving you resources to help. And I'm also giving you resources to help you understand the bigger picture a little better. This month's resources are all are really just focused on light stuff, how to pray. And over the next few months, I'll give you more and more. But the goal here is for our church to be a church that is praying in unity together for the same things. For six months. I think we can do it. It is time for us to get on our knees and to pray. It's time for us to be a praying church because I can tell you right now, if you want our church to be here to celebrate its 180th birthday, you've got to pray. No matter what. That is actually the job of every Christian, to pray. It's one of the single most important things we can do, but we, we tend to neglect it. So I'm helping you. I'll tell you what to pray for. I'll give you resources that'll help you out. At some point, we'll probably start doing some, some group prayer things together so you don't have to do it alone. But grab one of these, take it home, and start praying. Thomas Paine, when he was writing, thought that Christianity would be forgotten in 30 years. It's been a bit longer than that. And it's still not forgotten. And the reality is people will forget him before they forget Christianity. Whatever happens over these next six months, 100 years from now, no one will remember it. They won't remember anything about churches splitting. They won't remember churches voting on things. What they will remember is the churches who planted the seeds to grow into something new, to grow into something big the churches who invested in their communities, the churches who fed the hungry, the churches who loved the people who were broken. And to do all that, we have to be a people of prayer. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.